This is On Script, bringing you conversations about current scholarship on Scripture. We're your hosts, Matt and Matt. Thanks for listening. Welcome to On Script. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. Perhaps the most famous quote in the history of philosophy. These words, I think, therefore I am, penned by Rene Descartes, make a link between thinking and being. But does it reinforce a dangerous tendency for us to separate our mental processes from our bodies? If so, what are the implications? How do our bodies relate to our minds? And what might this have to do with how we read scripture? This is Matthew Bates, and I'm your host for this new episode of On Script. And who is our guest today? It is none other than Joel B. Green of Fuller Theological Seminary, one of my favorite New Testament scholars. Joel, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. It's great to have you. Well, it's wonderful to be with you and the audience. Well, thanks for joining us today. Joel has penned a marvelous new book, Conversion in Luke-Acts. Divine Action, Human Cognition, and the People of God. It's hot off the press from Baker Academic. Joel's book breaks new ground in a variety of ways, but its most distinctive contribution, perhaps, is an exploration of what the cognitive sciences can teach us about conversion. Let me tell you a little bit more about Joel. Joel B. Green is the Dean of the School of Theology and Professor of New Testament Interpretation at Fuller Theological Seminary. Joel is the author of more than 40 books. My personal favorite book by Joel is his large-scale commentary titled The Gospel of Luke, 1997, in the New International Critical Commentary series. Joel is also famous for his editorial work. He is the editor of the NICNT series that I just mentioned, the Two Horizon Commentary series, Journal of Theological Interpretation, and Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels. Today, however, we are discussing Joel's new book, Conversion in Luke-Acts, Divine Action, Human Cognition, and the People of God. Now, Joel, you've produced an enormous amount of first-rate scholarship over the course of your entire career. So this is what I'm wondering. Do you ever rest? (laughs) Uh, I do. Um, I get as much sleep as the next person, uh, but I do uh, organize my time in ways that allows me to get some things done uh, and I tend to balance things pretty easily and so I can uh, juggle a number of things at once which allows me to do the administrative work that you've already mentioned uh, teaching as well as some scholarship along the way. Well I'm, I'm kind of a, a one one thing at a time person. I don't multitask very well and I admire those who can do it. Uh, so you allege that you sometimes rest. So how about this? Uh, let's say you just get four days off and you're not allowed to touch your books at all. Uh, you've got to go just goof off. Uh, and uh, you can't go too far. You've only got four days and you've got a limited budget. So what are you going to do just around town? Uh, you got some extra time. What are you up to? Uh, probably my wife and I, Pam, uh, will visit our daughter who lives uh, not far away. Uh, there are places that we're still trying to visit here in the Southern California area, and so we'd probably do that as well. Well, if I lived in Southern California, I probably wouldn't want to leave either, uh, as it's uh, it's pretty blessed, I imagine, in Pasadena. What's the temperature there right now? Do I even want to know? 
It's probably around 70 degrees right now. Yeah, somehow I would have guessed that. A uh, little yeah. colder here in Illinois, a little bit colder. So uh, you've written a lot already in your career, and obviously anything you write at this point, Joel, uh, you're not writing because you need to publish for career purposes. You've, you've obviously got intrinsic motivation, things that you want to say, uh, and that you're excited to communicate with others. So how about for this book? What is it that you are most excited to tell people about with regard to conversion and Luke Acts? Well, this book uh, really comes about as the intersection of three uh, sort of paths in my life. Uh, one is I grow out of the Wesleyan tradition, um, which has placed a large emphasis on the way of salvation, the uh, soteriological journey, the, the movement uh, of, of God's grace in someone's life and, and response. And so uh, studying conversion uh, would come naturally for someone in my tradition. Uh, you've already mentioned my commentary on Luke, which uh, is about, oh, almost 20 years old now. But I've been studying Luke for a long time, Luke and the book of Acts. And it's hard to read Luke-Acts without thinking that you're reading the narrative that is, at least in some significant degree, concerned with conversion. And so... The Wesleyan tradition that I come out of, Luke Acts, and then also, uh, as you've already pointed out, uh, the subtitle "Human Cognition" uh, in the subtitle that grows out of some work that I've been involved in for about 20 years at the interface of neuroscience and theology, or neuroscience and biblical studies, and the whole question of what it means to um, uh, understand oneself embodied what it means to live as a Christian uh, in this holistic sense. And conversion is an interesting way to think about that, uh, particularly when you hear phrases like uh, take Jesus into your heart or receive Jesus into your heart or a change of heart. And, you know, the question arises, um, how does that work itself out in the context of one's relationships, uh, in the context of one's everyday life? And so those three areas come together in this book, and um, the result is, I hope, a contribution uh, to our overall understanding of, of conversion. Now, your kind of your journey into the cognitive sciences is a bit unorthodox for biblical scholars. Uh, and you've even done graduate work, right, in the cognitive sciences. So how, what really tickled your fancy there that motivated you enough to get you going in doing that kind of serious labor, not just dabbling, but serious labor in the cognitive sciences? Back in the mid-1990s, I was invited by a couple of faculty people down here at Fuller Seminary to be a part of a work group. I was teaching at the time up in Berkeley, Northern California, and was about to be uh, making the transition over to Asbury Seminary in Central Kentucky. And this was a Templeton-funded working group that was concerned with the interface of theology, philosophy, uh, and the cognitive sciences around the question of what does it mean to be human. So that was uh, my initial foray into the whole conversation. Uh, that working group led to another, and that one led to another. 
And here's typically the makeup of these groups. There's one Bible person, that would be me. There's one or two theologians. There's one philosopher. And then there's this whole uh, slew of, of uh, natural scientists, especially neuroscientists. I got a little tired of uh, listening to this in-house talk. Uh, and so I decided to wade into it myself and ended up uh, spending some time at the University of Kentucky in, the, in a graduate program in neuroscience, uh, which gave me uh, a good basis from which to continue reading and continue to work on issues of integration. Well, we're grateful that you did that additional work as it bears tremendous fruit here, I think, in this book. That's a nice culmination of some of that um, that further training you did in the cognitive sciences. And it certainly makes for an interesting um, point of departure for thinking about conversion. Um, let's go ahead and dig into some of the details in your book. Um, and uh, you actually open the book with something that might, on the surface, appear sort of tedious and mundane, matters of definition. But I actually think you end up taking it someplace exciting because it really serves as an entry point into cognitive linguistics. So here's my question then. How does the field of cognitive linguistics help us to rethink the very category of defining something uh, itself? And maybe you could make that concrete, uh, if you wish, by talking about definitions of conversion. Well, the, the issue that you raise is an important one. I, when I'm reading in New Testament studies about conversion, or when I'm hearing people talk about conversion, it's often the case that there's a, a kind of working assumption of what that means. And that leads to a whole series of questions that are brought to a text like the Gospel of Luke or the Book of Acts. And so people in the recent history of interpretation, they struggle over whether um, uh, conversion is a moral category or a uh, behavior category. Uh, is it related to a particular pattern? Um, so there's a lot of questions that have been raised that assume a working definition of conversion without actually reflecting on the assumptions behind that working definition. What I try to argue in my opening chapter is that the long shadow of William James uh, in his book of, oh, about a hundred years ago, has, uh, has been involved in this conversation and has actually uh, shaped how we understand conversion as primarily something that's internal, uh, subjective, um, uh, crisis, uh, individualistic. There, so there's a variety of things that that are simply assumed about conversion, which are also assumptions about how humans uh, experience life in general. So a cognitive approach, uh, in in a, an important sense, calls that kind of assumption into question. Um, cognitive science is concerned with a person's own agency in his or her own body, uh, but also concerned with how a human being is nested within a community or experiences the scaffolding of a community or communities. And if that's true, then conversion has to be understood in relationship to embodied life uh, and in terms of uh, this basic relationality 
that shapes what it means to be human. Yeah, I think that um, the material that you had on William James and the way that you juxtaposed uh, his his this kind of intense internal introspective um, uh, emphasis on conversion um, uh, with uh, Luke's uh, Luke's material uh, was striking and uh, and very very helpful. I'm going to read something from your page 11 um, and uh, and just uh, and, and use that as a launching point for another question here. Uh, on page 11, you state, I take it as axiomatic that sociological work has much to offer our understanding of conversion in the New Testament materials. And then you go on, you talk about Peter Berger's work a little bit. Uh, and then you say, say later on, nor can psychology be so easily set aside. So here's my question. How would you respond to an individual who's not willing to grant your axiom? Uh, and this is not me, of course, uh, but I think some people are hostile to psychological and sociological approaches. Uh, an individual who says, in effect, well, Dr. Green, you know, with all due respect, uh, you can take your psychobabble, your sociobabble, and you can stick it in your ear. Uh, I want to hear what the Bible teaches about conversion, not some newfangled theory. Um, how do you guide them into a healthier engagement with the cognitive sciences? Well, that's a that's a really helpful question, uh, not least given some of the problems that we've had with psychological and or sociological approaches to theology and to scripture. Uh, but what I try to argue in this book as well as in an earlier book, the one you mentioned on body, soul, and human life, is that we're not talking about bringing something like sociology or psychology to the text as if those issues were not already uh, a part of the text. Uh, what I'm trying to take seriously is that, uh, in our case, Luke-Acts, uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, already assumed certain things about what it means to be human, what it means to be human in relationships, what it means to be human when you think about internal and external realities. So the question is not, uh, do you bring something um, alien or foreign, the question is um, what assumptions about the human person are already at work here. One way I think about this is by thinking about the image of God that we read about in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, what, what that means, of course, has been much debated over the history of interpretation, uh, but the fact that the issues even raised uh, the fact that the issue is raised again, say in Psalm chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 1, and so on, suggests that uh, even if Scripture is not always reflecting explicitly on these questions, uh, Scripture is making assumptions, or working with assumptions, about these kinds of issues. So I'm trying to tease these out and make broader statements that don't allow us simply to read back 20th and 21st century assumptions uh, into the text. One of the, um, one of the questions that I try to deal with in, as I move from chapter 1 to chapter 2 is pretty directly related to the question that you raise. Uh, in a sense, what I'm doing is uh, putting forth a hunch uh, that I then want to test as I read Luke Acts. The hunch is uh, actually uh, a 20th century William Jamesian understanding of conversion and therefore of the human person 
doesn't work so well with Lukacs, but a more cognitive embodied relational approach does work with Lukacs. So the question is that, and the answer would be, does Lukacs actually support one way of reading versus another? And of course my argument is it supports the more relational embodied notion over against the more internal crisis, subjective, uh, internal, individualistic approach. Now, Joel, you've already started to touch on matters a little bit, uh, bridging between chapter one and chapter two, and I have a question about your second chapter, and that's where you lay a lot of the foundation, I think, for your cognitive approach. Um, and you cite some famous case studies there, Phineas Gage, the London cab drivers, other uh, studies that have been done that have bearing on cognition. Uh, what do these have to do with religious conversion? Uh, how do you kind of uh, make the leap between these famous studies and um, what it specifically has to do with conversion? Right. Well, uh, in, in one sense, you might say they have very little to do with conversion uh, per se. Uh, one of the problems that I point out in Chapter 2 is it's hard to um, study conversion from a cognitive science perspective uh, that would require uh, what you might call a certain machinery, uh, you know, wearing some kind of headset over your head, your brain, to, uh, to chart brain waves while you're being converted. I mean, it just boggles the mind to imagine that that's even possible. Uh, but what I do try to show with these rather famous cases, the cab drivers and Phineas Cage are, are two examples, um, is the degree to which our uh, emotions, our will, uh, our, our volition, um, our memories, to the degree to which these are in fact uh, properties of the brain, or that is they have uh, neuronal substrates. So it's not like there's some part of me uh, that's floating somewhere that, that isn't already working uh, at a neuronal or a brain level. Uh, so if, if Phineas Gates can, can experience this rod going up through his brain and uh, having this, this uh, uh, horrible injury to his brain uh, survive, and as one person put it, he's no longer uh, the person that we knew, uh, undergo a kind of radical change, uh, then that actually does tell us something about conversion. It tells us that whatever changes we're talking about are not, quote-unquote, you know, purely spiritual, but are human changes that involve all of who we are. And I think that some of these things you mentioned um, pertain to what's traditionally been called in philosophy then the, the mind-body problem or, uh, you know, the brain-mind problem or, you know, body-soul dualism, a, a whole bunch of different ways to talk about this. Um, and in some ways, it seems like you're at least pushing towards the idea that we need to say farewell to the disembodied soul. Um, is this true? Is this sort of where you're angling um, and if so, do you want to qualify that in any way or, and maybe perhaps give some reasons why, uh, uh, in terms of articulating your perspective on the mind body problem? Um, what I've tried to argue in an earlier book, Body, Soul and Human Life, uh, is the degree to which that, um, uh, radical separation of body soul is, is not a position that's very well 
grounded in scripture. It's more grounded in certain aspects of Greco-Roman philosophy, uh, but not so much in scripture. Um, one of the arguments that I make there and that I uh, repeat in this book, uh, although much more um, uh, in much shorter compass, is uh, scripture basically tries to treat human beings as whole people and not as uh, someone, a person that can be divided into parts. Um, aspects, yes, parts, uh, not so much. And so there are a variety of possible ways of thinking about this. Uh, I have a couple of colleagues here at Fuller, um, both cognitive scientists, who talk about this with a rather inelegant phrase, um, humans as complex, emergent, developmental, linguistic, relational, neurophysiological beings. Uh, not the sort of thing that you'll use every day uh, at the grocery store or in a Sunday school class, but it does speak to something of the uh, complexity of what it means to be human so that we're not talking about uh, a position that goes by the name of reductive physicalism or materialism. It's not nothing but brain waves. It's not nothing but neurons. Uh, but at the same time, there is, in this view, no requirement, no need for a separate metaphysical entity like a soul or spirit. Uh, there's only human beings in their holistic embodied uh, life. So you used, um, it sounds like you might prefer language like a, that, uh, that it's emergent upon um, uh, or something like that in, in terms of thinking about brain and mind, uh, that the mind then emerges from the brain uh, but can't be reduced to it. It kind of reminds me of an analogy I heard somewhere, and I can't remember where, but uh, the analogy of perhaps a record that has the music recorded on it, but uh, the music itself isn't identical to uh, what's on the record. It has to be played in order for it to emerge as something that we can engage. Is that a fair analogy for what you're articulating? Well, I've, I've never thought about that analogy before, and it, it's worth reflecting on. It certainly gives rise to the possibilities of different experiences of the same reality, uh, the same, if you will, uh, substrate. In this case, uh, did you say record? Did you say vinyl? <laughs> yeah, I'm going old school on you, Joel. I'm you getting way back. Uh, so they're, they're the same you know, markings, as it were, on the vinyl, but uh, we experience it differently, and the... Um, uh, the, the consequence is, is significant in a way that the, the grooves are not. All of that begins to make sense as I think about it. Hmm. Well, I don't remember where I heard that, but, uh, but uh, maybe it's, uh, it, it, it was a powerful, uh, I guess, image for me as it stuck whenever I heard it. And uh, I, whenever I was reading through your book, I wondered if you would find that to be a helpful analogy or not. Yeah, I think it is helpful. I, I might add one thing, and it's a place where um, I think uh, Christian theology uh, pushes back against some aspects of the way neuroscientists talk about human beings. Uh, they tend to think in terms of one person at a time. Uh, there are a number of studies, a number of books now written that press beyond that, but uh, our tradition, the Christian tradition, simply can't think about human beings one at a time without thinking about humans in relationship to 
uh, God in relationship to uh, the human family, and in fact in relationship to the created order. Uh, so there's a there's a essential um, relational character uh, to human beings that can't be uh, reduced to mind and brain. Uh, we we are who we are in relationship with others. I want to go over to your chapter three here, uh, and uh, in chapter three, uh, you begin to develop especially the metaphor of journey, and you, this is where you begin really to dig into Luke-Acts a, a bit more, and you take John the Baptist uh, and uh, ideas of conversion around John the Baptist's ministry as your launching point. Um, and so journey is the dominant conceptual frame that emerges, um, and you talk about journey as a metaphor, and uh I have a couple questions around this idea. The first would be, uh, uh, you, you had some remarks about how metaphors in general relate to brain activity. That was interesting to me, and I was wondering if you could expand on how metaphors in general relate to brain activity. Why don't we start with that, and then I'll have a follow-up question. But how do metaphors in general relate to brain activity? Well, the kind of metaphor activity that I'm thinking about in Chapter uh, 3 um, is related to the larger question of cognitive metaphor theory and then the degree to which um, metaphor is not simply something we use when we're trying to decorate our sentences or decorate our descriptions of things uh, that's not you know artwork that could be removed and you wouldn't lose anything uh, in fact uh, these are ways of conceiving reality and the conversion metaphor is actually one, or the journey metaphor rather, is actually one that has been studied a good bit because it's one of the chief ways that uh, humans across cultures talk about life, journey as life, or life as journey. Um, so essentially what happens is uh, we're talking about mapping uh, from one domain to the next, uh, from the journey domain over into uh, different ways of conceiving patterns of life. So, uh, for example, uh, a traveler uh, would be a person living a life. Uh, the destination would be life purpose. Uh, crossroads would be uh, choices in life. And it, this is actually language uh, that we often use as we talk about ourselves and we talk about our process or our progress through life. Uh, and we actually, you know, we ask ourselves these kinds of questions. Where are you headed? Where have you been? Um, uh, I've come to a crossroads. Um, I'm facing an obstacle. You know, those kinds of things that grow out of um, the way that we conceive reality and make sense of life. Joel, your fourth chapter is texts and metaphors, and that's kind of where you expand the study beyond John the Baptist that you focus on in chapter 3, and then chapter 4 really expands to the rest of Luke-Acts. And you've already, I think, um, touched, touched into that a little bit uh, in describing some of your key evidence for the journey. Um, one of the things that grabbed my attention most in chapter 4 uh, was 
the idea of an ongoing conversion of some of the key characters. Uh, you talked about that with Peter, I remember, and some other characters too. Um, but what do, you, what do you mean by this ongoing conversion then? And uh, could you just expand on um, how this uh, is a helpful concept for us? I use the illustration of Peter in uh, chapter uh, 4. Peter who um, has his ups and downs, as we all know, in the gospel tradition. Uh, but if you're reading Luke Acts, you see actually this progression uh, by which he um, embraces uh, who Jesus is. Uh, Depart from me, I'm a sinner. In chapter 5, um, has points where he's capable of significant misunderstanding and missteps. Um, filled with the Spirit, is able to speak by means of the Spirit and to be involved in the mission. Uh, there's an ongoing process by which we see he comes more and more fully into uh, the, the realm or the domain of God's kingdom uh, and is ruled more and more, if you will, by Jesus as Lord. So that's an interesting example. And if you go on from the example that we find with Peter, there are another uh, a number of other metaphors uh, where we see ongoing processes, ongoing uh, processes that lead from one domain to the next. I I struggled uh, with this part of the chapter in part because we tend to use the word conversion for the beginning of the Christian life. Uh, so we use language like new birth or conversion. Uh, that's obviously not Luke's language, new birth. Uh, you find that in the Johannine material or in First Peter, uh, not in Luke. But conversion still is something that we tend to think of as the beginning. What I found when I read Luke Acts, though, is that Luke doesn't use that language only at the beginning, but for the entire process by which one comes uh, more and more to come under the Lordship of Christ and to engage more fully in God's mission, to embrace more fully God's agenda in the world. Uh, so what I found as I kept reading Luke Acts is actually a more of a journey uh, process approach than a punctiliar moment by a moment approach. Following up on that, um, I think that you've obviously put your finger in, in, in kind of talking about this punctiliar versus process uh, approach on a key point of tension that might be raised as we try to systematize uh, what the Bible teaches about these things. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, can we reconcile this idea as, of conversion as a journey with a more punctiliar idea of regeneration and the idea that you're just you know, you're given the Holy Spirit and you're instantly changed? Uh, or is it something that we just have to accept there are different metaphors in Scripture? Well, I'm happy to talk about different metaphors in Scripture, obviously. So I, I'm not concerned that um, things fit too carefully or too neatly into a uh, um, you know, one uh, statement or one proposition. I am interested in the fact that the language of conversion uh, is especially found in Luke Acts. And so if you were going to come up with a quote-unquote, you know, biblical theology of conversion, uh, 
in some ways the loudest, most weightiest voice would be here in the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts where this language especially congregates. Uh, nevertheless, I think it's appropriate to say things like this. I think it's appropriate to say uh, you can have moments that begin a process. Uh, I, I hesitate to say that because I don't mean to say you can have a moment that, that possibly might lead to a process because, in fact, uh, starting a journey uh, you know, requires that the journey be taken up. Uh, so it's a process that uh, gives way to a journey. One of the, one of the um, ways that I talk about this in the book, book uh, would be the notion of compression. Um, I, I, I went to town is, is an example of this. I went to town sounds like a moment but in fact, um, it requires a good bit of activity. It might even, for some of us, require a good bit of time. Um, but we still can use the language, I went to town. In the same way, I was converted. Uh, that sounds like a moment. Uh, it could actually, though, be an entire process by which you came to the place uh, in your life where uh, you became aware of God. You became aware of God's grace at work in your life. You, uh, you, you searched. Uh, you sought. You engaged with some believers. You see what I'm trying to say. There's, there's actually a process that leads up to the moment that gives way to another process. So all of this is part of the journey. I think that I'm trying to describe in that chapter. I think that's helpful. Um, your fifth chapter, Joel, introduces uh, a somewhat troubling topic, perhaps to some, uh, the idea of deconversion. And you look at Luke's portrayal of several characters, Judas Iscariot, Ananias and Sapphira, Simon Magus, uh, and uh, some, uh, and this is not a secret code for me, because uh, I think I find your case pretty persuasive here, but some are probably going to resist this idea of deconversion. Um, uh, they might even argue that, well, these people were never truly converted. Um, how does the cognitive science approach help? And maybe you could make this land concretely on Ananias and Sapphira. Well, it's, it's, a, it's an important question that you raise. And um, in some ways, it seems to me that the approach that I'm arguing for in this chapter moves away from the questions that have occupied uh, different parts of the tradition, a, a more uh, Calvinian or Calvinistic approach versus a more Armenian approach. And the reason for that is if you take, uh, if you take seriously the notion of conversion as a journey, then you never get to say um, it's over. You never get to say uh, now I'm X or now uh, before I was an, uh, Y and now I'm X. You have to say that I'm uh, in a process of uh, being on a journey with the community, uh, putting into practice um, uh, the, the life-forming practices of this community of, as have been shaped by the coming of Christ. You know, those kinds of things where I try to define conversion. So the, the debate would be with Ananias and Sapphira, were they Christians? And the answer would have to be... Um, uh, whose categories are that uh, are you using there? Uh, you know the word 
Christian isn't even used yet in the book of Acts until much later. Uh, but if you take seriously that from a cognitive perspective, internal and external are uh, expressions of the same thing. It's not one leading to the other, but actually embodied human life. Then you'd have to say they're presenting themselves in a certain way. They behave in a certain way that actually betrays their having taken a wrong turn on the journey. They have they have left the path, the the way. And as a consequence of that, um, we might use the language. This is contemporary language uh, in sociological study of conversion. We might use the language of deconversion. All of this is prepared for, I try to say, in the Gospel of Luke, in the in the chapter eight, with the parable of the sower or parable of the farmer, as it sometimes is called, where you have people uh, compared with with uh, different soils, and they experience uh, the growth or the, the seeding and the growth in various ways, some of which lead to fruit and some of which lead to falling off of the path, so to speak. So I, I, I think that Luke is actually reshaping the categories that we might use to think about these discussions uh, and if we start with Luke rather than with the debate that uh, struggles over uh, what it means to lose one's salvation or to backslide or, you know, those kinds of questions, we might do better. Well, Joel, you've definitely written a marvelous book, and uh, you're a superb reader of the text, and I think that's one of the things I've always appreciated since the very moment I encountered your work. I, I promised I wanted to work in a story about your NICNT uh, Gospel of Luke uh uh, commentary, and uh, this was actually, uh, to use the metaphor of the journey, important in my own journey. It's uh, something that I read actually when I was first getting interested in biblical studies, and uh, it's one of the few commentaries that I could say I've read cover to cover, and uh, the way it helped me in my journey was twofold. One, obviously, it, it uh, shaped me as a biblical scholar and got me interested in uh, seeing Luke as a theologian and and the kind of uh, uh, you know narrative linkages Luke was making to arrange his material in thoughtful ways for us. But beyond that, it actually helped me in my personal journey. Uh, and a, a kind of a funny story to tell on this, uh, I was actually um, doing my undergraduate degree in physics, and uh, I, I I finished that degree in physics, and uh, this was at Whitworth uh, University. And uh, I was away for a Jan term studying with a professor, and we were studying an atmospheric phenomenon called airglow, and we had gone to New Mexico to an observatory there to study. Uh, and anyway, while I was there, uh, there was uh, a certain young lady uh, who uh, uh, he, she and I were kind of studying this airglow together, right, and uh, spending a lot of intense time together, uh, and uh, uh, there was uh, some t temptation toward a fling. Uh, but uh, I, meanwhile, had brought your commentary on Luke uh, and was uh, diligently reading it and uh, thinking about the cost of discipleship and the need to stay on uh, the right path. And uh, this was actually at a pretty critical moment in my own spiritual journey as I'd recently made some major changes in my life. And uh, at the same time, uh, there was... Uh, a certain gal back in Spokane that I had kind of developed an interest in that I knew was the right girl for me. And this other girl uh, that I was, uh, you know, in New Mexico with was not the right girl, but there was a temptation toward the swing. Anyway, I persevered uh, partly through reading your commentary, 
went back to Spokane, and uh, now this uh, this gal who was waiting for me in Spokane is my wife of some 14 years. So, so there you go. Uh, your commentary, both spiritually edifying and nurturing uh, for the journey, and a great piece of biblical scholarship. Thank you, man. I've actually never heard a story quite like that. One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there, there's probably not, you know, uh, too many instances of, uh, you know, deep edification by reading a whole biblical commentary. But in your case, I got it. Um, all right. So I have a final question for you, though, Joel. And uh, it's uh, a question about uh, putting this all into action. Uh, if this metaphor of of life as a journey is integral to our conversion, we need to keep being converted. What community practices do you think are most vital for the church today as we seek to recover uh, and to continue on our, our ongoing conversion? Uh, what should we do? Uh, I think one of the crucial things this presses for is actually uh, providing people with the possibility, with an invitation, with the possibility of joining the journey. Um, I'm afraid that uh, churches don't often invite people in come and taste come and see that the Lord is good you know those kinds of things uh, if if conversion means having to um, accept everything at once uh, then it becomes more difficult if conversion means taking some steps that lead to more steps that lead to more steps uh, then that becomes in my mind a practice that uh, uh, the kind of thing we read in Luke Acts is inviting people to pursue. I think one of the crucial practices uh, that Luke Acts also presses on is the is the uh, the practice of hospitality, which you might say is very much related to the what I just said about invitation. Uh, by hospitality, I mean openness to the other. I mean inviting people into our lives and our homes and our uh, to our tables and experiencing with them the joy of the journey as well as the invitation of the journey. Uh, to my way of thinking, the other two practices that go hand in hand, uh, prayer and scripture, uh, engagement with scripture, those two practices are formative in so many ways, but one of the ways that prayer in Luke Acts and scripture reading in Luke Acts are formative is in bringing people uh, face-to-face, uh, over and over, with God's agenda in the world, so that prayer is is revelatory and is itself an invitation to embrace and to join in God's work. Uh, scripture as a way of expanding our notions of what God might be up to in the world and how we might uh, engage it. Uh, so there's four practices, I guess, that I've mentioned that uh, are, I think, important. There could be others that we could discuss. Um, you know, community goods, economic uh, sharing, that's an important issue in, in uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. But those are, those are four I might mention. So invitation to invite people along with the journey, hospitality, prayer, scripture, and then at the end there you mentioned economic sharing. I think you're right. Those are critical practices for the church to recover. Well, Joel, this has been wonderful. I admire how well you've managed to integrate cognitive sciences and biblical studies. All of us who are interested in thinking through such matters uh, obviously have a model now uh, for how to do it better. Uh, it's a very fruitful approach, I think. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Thank you for joining us today, Joel. This is Matthew Bates for OnScript. 
Joel B. Green has been our special guest today. His new book, Conversion and Luke Acts, with Baker Academic, is terrific. We highly recommend it. There's a link to Joel's book on our website, onscript.study. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Thank you.